Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Letterboxd Recap from Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. This is the episode where we go over our last week of movie watching. James, have you been watching any cool movies lately? I only watch cool movies, Anthony. <laughs> and this is Letterboxd Recap number three now. Number three, wow. Our new weekly segment that we do every Tuesday, audio only on every audio streaming platform that you can find podcasts. So this is a new thing that we love doing because I just made my letterbox a couple weeks ago. My username is at James Potter underscore. And then the Raiders main account on Letterboxd is at Raiders Lost Pod. And Anthony runs the Raiders Letterbox account. And I was like, where Anthony was like, hey, you should probably get on Letterboxd. You <laughs> loser, you have a film podcast and you still are a boomer. So how about you get a, uh, be a normal? I, I was uh, way ahead on tech on you in that, in that on regard. On tech, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one time. You're the mean, boomer this meanwhile, time. Meanwhile, today you found out something that is really easy to do on Instagram that you had no idea about. Whoa, it was like an intricacy of Instagram that <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. Well, you found out you could share stories this year. Anyways. <laughs> Let's start off with our letterbox recap, and I think we left off last week. We were on June third and fourth. I'd watched Juno in the house, but so number one for my week for June fifth to eleventh, it looks like is Taxi Driver. I watched it on June fifth because we had an episode that we were gonna film, and it's coming out on Thursday on the Martin Scorsese classic. I obviously gave this film five stars, and I would love to read my review for it. I would love to hear it. I would love to hear it. You think everyone else would like to hear it? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Scorsese is probably your favorite director's favorite director. Taxi Driver is the movie he changed cinema with, and it almost killed him. Years ahead of its time when it debuted at Cannes in 1906. <laughs> Let me slow 1906. down. 1906. <laughs> 1906. Years ahead of its time when it debuted at Cannes in 1976, the audience booed it for being too violent. Still, the film was awarded the Palme d'Or, and went on to score four Academy Award nominations. Scorsese was forced to desaturate the color of the blood during the climax, or else he would have been hit with an X rating. Now, this is back before NC-17, and that still would have been a bad thing to have on your movie, but I believe it was just PG and R for movie ratings. We'll talk about that in the main episode on Thursday. It's a good episode. The stress placed on Marty during this period was incomprehensible. It's probably comparable to what Travis Bickle feels, living life on the edge of madness, one small push from being sent into violence. Travis is a man with a mysterious past that haunts his every moment. He can't sleep, so he drives a cab. He thinks a relationship with a woman is the answer to becoming a person, but he doesn't know the proper social etiquette for what he wants. Travis is also haunted by the filth of his city that he wants to clean up. You may think his biggest confessions are to his diary, but actually... It's not until Palantine is in his cab that he lets his thoughts out in the open. Travis needs to do something. He's amassing an arsenal of arms. He's trying to help a young sex worker. Should he assassinate the politician? Will that get the revenge he wants on the society that rejects him? What does fate have in store for Travis Bickle? I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot and I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. It means nothing. And review. That was a epic review, man. Thanks, bro. Damn, you go all out. Epic movie needed an epic review. <laughs> Anthony's over there like, oh, I better add some stuff to mine. <laughs> no, no. I'm kidding. No. Yours are always excellent reviews, Anthony. Thanks, man. Thanks. I'm always so impressed when I read them. <laughs> I'm always like, wow, he really understands cinema. Didn't know you could read. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It's like your favorite one. <laughs> Didn't they read it? It's a great one. They have some great posters on Letterboxd for Taxi Driver. I chose this great uh, yellow background and then Travis in the center with the mohawk with the Badass. big white font. Oh, yeah, the black and white Travis. Yeah, it's a good it's, one. It's really cool. I like that one. There's, there's a ton of great options. I, uh, but none of, I couldn't find really the poster that I have because it's a custom poster. The one yeah, that yours is, yeah, that's that's yeah, just that company made that. that so. the, the red in it is just incredible. Because on the set, on the show, Anthony has a taxi driver poster that's behind him, and it's a custom-made poster. It's, it's the same company that made my Chamber of Secrets, and then the Lord of the Rings one that I, Lord of the Rings one that I have on my side, yeah. custom commission artist ones. But they they it looks like they took a, a close up from the film and put it into the rear view window there. It's yeah, not definitely, a, it's not an actual shot. Yeah, it's just they, like yeah, they, this they one's they like three shots yeah. composited together, yeah. basically. Yeah, a bunch of composites. It looks great. They like compositing. We love compositing. I also gave Taxi Driver five stars, obviously. I wrote, it's the most complex character piece ever put on film, cemented itself as a visceral and monumental depiction of society, disillusionment, violence, isolation, and desperation. I was in high school when I discovered Taxi Driver for the first time. This was in the long, long ago, well before social media. I was intrigued by the DVD covers I kept seeing at stores and the buzz in the film communities I kept reading about. After buying the DVD and watching it in its entirety for the first time, I found myself changed by what I saw on screen. Then I watched it again and again and again. What Scorsese did with this landmark film was nothing short of remarkable. Although there have been many imitators, Taxi Driver still stands in a league of its own and will always be one of the great mysteries of cinema. Our full episode on Taxi Driver will post next Thursday. Nice, dude. End of review. Yeah, nice. And I feel like we'll save more of the review for when you watch when you listen to the episode on Thursday. Yeah, but I've also written a review about Taxi Driver in the past on Letterboxd, yeah. so I'm just I just change it up. I'm surprised that when you were a teenager and you saw Taxi Driver, you didn't shave your head into a mohawk and just like <laughs> go ham. <laughs> it's already hard enough without having any friends. <laughs> You had friends in your head. <laughs> don't be, don't lie to yourself, man. They were there somewhere. It's a, it's a good uh, Halloween costume, though. I would say. It definitely is. Yeah. Like uh, I like the neighbors. The movie's decently funny, but then they do. Oh, everyone dresses as Robert De Niro characters. De Niro party. Yeah. Zach Efron is a uh, taxi driver. Let's grab us with the shape. All right, let's move on to our next watches. My next watch was actually AI artificial intelligence, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. I gave this. Four stars. He actually wrote the script, too. He does not write really a ton of his scripts lately. He's never century. written before. Yeah, I'm just kidding. He's right. <laughs> but he actually yeah. wrote the script and uh, came out in 2001. I'd love to read my review. What defines a real boy? Is it love? A mother? Flesh and, bud? Flesh and blood? Can it also be 100 miles of fiber? The desire to be real? Can a fairy tale be true? Steven Spielberg's turn-of-the-century banger is more relevant than ever and has aged like fine wine. You called AI a turn-of-the-century banger? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> Sharply directed, with deeply metaphorical imagery in every single scene, and an incredible child performance from Haley Joel Osment, this film tells the story of a robo-boy on a quest to become a real boy. The CGI looks better than 90% of movies today, <laughs> also has the greatest voiceover cameo of all time, um, I don't know if anyone knows, but it has. A, I don't want to spoil it, but if you want to let, if you want to know, just look it up. It has a great voiceover cameo just for one scene, and I I thought it was really excellent. I had only seen the movie once, so many years ago, back when I was back when we were kids, and 
I I watched it kind of by accident. I thought we were covering it for an episode, and, and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch you it. You skimmed the email. Yeah, I skimmed an email. Or I skimmed the text <laughs> and then realized that artificial intelligence was a theme that we were going to be discussing in an episode. He thought we were talking about AI, and the it movie. was about AI in a movie. <laughs> the wording was... Wording sounded like it could have gone both the ways. T- the title of the email said aliens and artificial <laughs> intelligence. Said it's that's what it said. Anyways, I still enjoyed watching it because it's Steven Spielberg, and oh, we always talk about how big his filmography is and how many great movies he has, and it's almost impossible to pick a top ten. And he's got so many films that fly so far under the radar and in the shadow of his greatest films and most popular films. But this one is. Not the best story he's done, of course, but the filmmaking is all there. It's it's such such a well made movie. I was picking up on things every single shot, basically that was blowing my hair back. And it's very metaphorical and it's funny, it's sweet, but my God, it's aged so well. Especially with this year, twenty twenty three has become the year of artificial intelligence becoming into the service of the public. The year of Ty West <laughs> is over. <laughs> the year of AI. I can fucking see Anthony's. Manga. I could see Anthony's lips curling as he was about to say the year of Ty West. <laughs> <laughs> see you later, Ty. <laughs> AI is in town. It's not. You couldn't come anymore. up with Maxine quick enough. <laughs> AI took you over. But this movie, it's it's definitely worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it. In a while. Jude Law is excellent in it. He's so charming, and he's coming uh, right off Ripley, kind of similarly, just like he's a golden god in, in Ripley, and he's a robo-god in this film. This is like right after Gattaca. Yeah, around, around the same year. I think yeah. they were both 2001. And I just, this movie blew my hair back, and I completely forgot about the ending. It's basically a fourth act. I'm not going to spoil it or anything, but it it's wild. And it's just, it's a terrific ending. It's It's also a really tragic tale at the same time. And you know so many references, and I like how to, the, the, the movie shows Pinocchio yeah. and, and just oh, like yeah. these old fairy tales that just crop up here and there, and I, it's just so well made, man. Yeah, it's a very big parallel to Pinocchio, but it def it shows how um, humanity is like a, a speck in the yeah. realm of time, like but a, also just nothing, important just a, a blip. Yeah, because but, yeah, we were talking about this yesterday. How so many people in movies and TV and in People on the media, they're always like, oh, humans are trash. We're terrible. We're the worst people. We're the worst species of all time. Uh, we've done nothing good. We've only destroyed the world. But then, like, you, some of these movies, they really show that the beauty of humanity and why humans are special. And, and even if we are the only people in the universe, then that's a really special thing to appreciate. And, and we do create beauty. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the messages of this film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really deep film. There's a lot of themes to it. Haley Joel is so good. I think uh, he's like eight. He's like ten years old, and he's just operating on a level of actor from like in their prime in the thirties. Yeah, he um, he never doesn't get as much recognition for this as he did for The Sixth Sense. Obviously, because he got the nomination. This is a better performance, hundred percent. Well, yeah, he was a little bit older and just a better performer, I would say. But definitely, it's one of the, it's an all time child performance because he carries the whole. So movie. He's the lead of the movie. He's a he's a human person in real life, pretending to be a robot, but also complex emotions of yeah. a verge, different versions of the AI. It's it's terrific. You're asking a lot of the kid for this role. Seriously, in every, pretty ton. much in every scene, almost two hundred million dollar movie, and like, all right, let's see if he can act. Yeah. But I recommend watching. I think it was on HBO Max. I saw. I think mm-hmm. nice. I mean, Max, where to watch artificial intelligence. Max. Oh, we just got invited to uh, Mission Impossible 7. You just got accepted to choose. <laughs> choose the, yeah, that's a cute email. All right, my next movie that I watched during the week was In the Heat of the Night. This is I've been meaning to watch this for a while, directed by Norman Jewison. It stars Sidney Poitier. This film also won Best Picture and a couple of other Oscars. 
So it's um, an African-American detective is asked to investigate a murder in a racist town in the southern um, America. So he plays this character. He's a detective. There's a, the, the movie opens with a murder. It's not a spoiler. It's in the trailer and stuff. And then Sidney Poitier, he just happened to be in town visiting his mom. He's arrested. Everyone thinks it's him just because he's black. And they're like, you, we got him. And then it's like, I'm a detective, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and so once that gets cleared up, uh, they learn that he's actually an expert homicide detective. So uh, they're desperate for his help because they got nothing. And so it's this really incredible detective story. Um, and he en- ends up partnering with the captain of the town who obviously is very um, racist and is constantly discriminating against him as well as everybody else in town. But it kind of becomes this dual story where Poitier's character, he's investigating the film, but he's also at risk every time he meets a new person in this town or every situation he's in, you know, he's at risk of being killed by them just because of who he is. Um, So it's a really terrific film. Very intense. Excellent mystery. Um, I I really enjoyed the film. It was really, really well made. I love the cinematography. Um, But... Yeah, Sidney Poitier commands the screen in every, in like every regard. Like he's just got these piercing eyes, and he just dominates whatever whatever set he's on. Um, I wrote in my review, Sidney Poitier absolutely commands the screen in this riveting murder mystery, boasting engrossing social commentary and striking cinematography. I gave it a four and a half star out of five rating. Excellent review, man. This guy, great. I found this great poster in Letterbox of him holding a a pipe. Let me see. With a yellow font. Oh, it's, from badass. A, it's from a scene in the film. Badass. I'll have to give it a, a watch. It came out in 1967. Yeah, I've always wanted to watch that one. i got to add it to my list. Maybe that'll be the next movie I'll watch. Maybe it will. Maybe it will be. We'll find out on Letterboxd next week. <laughs> my next watch on Letterboxd was a sci-fi action classic from 1986. Aliens. We were actually just on the Double Impact podcast. So I revisited this because we talked about aliens in this episode. And I mean, obviously, I gave it five stars, and this is just a classic, and I'd love to read my review for you all. Never doubt the king of sequels, James Cameron. No one believed in this movie or in Cameron while he was in production of Aliens. The production crew famously made his life a living hell, thinking he was going to ruin Ridley Scott's masterpiece, Alien, with an action-heavy sequel that they thought nobody wanted. But boy, were they fucking wrong. Scott made the (laughs) best horror movie in set in space, and Cameron made the best action movie set in space. Aliens is arguably just as good as Alien, but for completely different reasons. Alien is very much a horror movie, whereas Aliens is very much an action movie. We have the evil corporation Weyland-Yutani, more xenomorphs, and the return of Ellen Ripley. Alien is a slow burn of suspense and scares, while Aliens is a bombastic blockbuster full of bullets and death. Scott made the best horror movie set in space, and Cameron made... Oh, you used that line. (laughs) I gotta edit that. Redundant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ripley returns with Wayland, Yutani, representatives, and Marines to assess the colony's mysterious silence. No one believes her story about the perfect alien organism that killed her entire crew last mission. Little does she know, Yutani has alter- ulterior corporate interests in the new mission, but everyone soon realizes they could never have been prepared for what they'll find. This movie kicks so much ass. Our uh, guest spot came out today, actually. It's posted live. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So the, the uh, episode we did about aliens it was good. They're nice guys. Well, it came out yesterday. yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Because yeah. Um, yeah, we record this on Monday. I didn't end up rewatching the film because I've seen it 
so many times, so I just skimmed it. I did a, a recapping oh, you just s- to catch up on it. Skimmed the email. I don't even. I mean, I've seen that movie so many times. Um, Same. I just felt like watching. So, it. so I skimmed. I skimmed it. But I watched just from watching this the recap. I was like, yeah, this movie's fucking great. I'm fixing my edit right now on Letterboxd. Le- Letterboxd has pretty crappy uh, text writing. I would say it's easy to make mistakes. Yeah, it doesn't have great um, autocorrect. Is what it is. I also got this great poster for Aliens on Letterboxd with Ripley and Newt in the Queen's Lair. Oh, and it's great. all blue. That's really great. They have a bunch of great options uh, for this film, but I went with that one. I think it was really, it's a really interesting drawing they did, whoever whoever designed that. But then there's also this one with the overhead view of the, of the Marines walking in. Oh, man, it's not updating. Sometimes it takes a second. Go uh, on Letterboxd update. Yeah, uh, forget it. You're not gonna be able to see it. Forget it. Wow. Um, but it's cool. It's, it, I'll just just take my word for it, man. I trust you, man. Trust me. Sounds incredible. It's, it's... I, I hope to see it one day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You gave it five stars, right? Oh fuck you. Fuck yeah, five stars. <laughs> Thought so. Thought so. It's just like a fucking perfect movie, man. It's a perfect movie. All right. Next up, I watched a old Japanese horror film. Recommended by our friend Marta McFly. Uh, Marta's awesome. Go check out her her social media if you want to learn about really cool films. Marta McFly. She recommended Quiden, which is an old Japanese horror film which came out in 1964, directed by the great Japanese filmmaker Kobayashi. I wrote, It is a technical marvel of filmmaking and a sensational batch of horror stories crafted by the Japanese master. The film's sound design and score are some of the most interesting I've ever heard and add to the depths of terror the characters are experiencing. Phenomenal camera work and inventive lighting techniques make us feel the fantastical nature of the mesmerizing stories unfolding on screen. So this is a series of four short films, uh, four horror stories, basically four chapters. They're not related to each other. Um, But there was actually some really good scares. Uh, It was incredible filmmaking just the, the they used really incredible lighting um blue lighting in the tricks to make the audience feel cold they used colorful warm red lighting to make the sets feel warm for others for another sequence uh they used a lot of studio work and with like painted backgrounds and backdrops and it just added this theatrical nature to it but most of the stories were ghost stories um and they were just really fantastic very original um, even to this day, they are very, very much more unique than most horror films I see nowadays. Uh, I found it to just be really, really incredible filmmaking and acting. Um, some of the actors you've seen in other Japanese films, if you've watched enough Japanese films, uh, a couple of Kobayashi regulars. But the cast is phenomenal. Great prosthetics and special effects and, and costuming and hair. Uh, but I was just engrossed in every tale. Each one was about 40 minutes, so it was a three-hour watch. Um, one of them was a little longer, so they were they they were they weren't like twenty minute shorts. They were little mini movies essentially, um, and I just was entertained and thrilled the whole time. Plus, the sound design was really interesting. They for they forewent a lot of traditional sound effects, and they really captured this tone and atmospheric feeling using um, a combination of the score and sound design. So. You're not hearing a lot of foley art, like footsteps. You're not hearing a lot of things of, that people are interacting with in the sets. Instead, you're hearing these incredible sound effects that the, the, the sound team created and the composer created. 
which I think really added to the to the sense of dread. Um, and sometimes there would be no music or no sound at all, and it really just like highlights um, the isolation of each character in certain moments. But uh, man, it was great. So it's it's called Quiet On. K W A I D A N. It came out in 1964. I gave it five stars out of five. It's, five out of five. It's one of the best horror movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm definitely adding this to my watch list, man. It's insane. It sounds terrific. It really does. Moving on to a film that we saw at Quentin Tarantino's movie theater in Hollywood, the New Beverly Cinema. We saw eight and a half projected on 35 millimeter film last Friday night. It was incredible. And I gave it five stars, of course, because, you know, this is Federico Fellini. This is a masterpiece. And I'd love to read my review. Capolavoro. That means masterpiece in Italian. <laughs> masterpiece. Federico Fellini's eight and a half proves that he has, he was the ultimate dreamer in cinema history. Fellini dances a tightrope of surrealism and self-reflection in a daring film within a film. The character poses the question, is cinema 50 years behind every other art form? More likely, Fellini was 50 years ahead. That's my review. Short and sweet. Nice. I love it. I also gave it five stars. Um, I've already reviewed this film in the past because uh, I, I watched it almost every year since I first saw it. This is an early Netflix DVD uh, in the mail movie I watched. In, in Anthony's dungeon? <laughs> Anthony's movie <laughs> dungeon? Back in the long, long ago. <laughs> The Travis Bickle, Goodfellas, but I will, eight and a half. Yeah. But I will say the movie is so surrealist and it's so non-traditional that I didn't understand it the first couple of times I saw it. And then um, over the past several years on rewatches, it j I get um, more clarity with the film. The and second watch for me really clicked. Oh, yeah. Time, yeah. It's, it's, it's so, it's so um, metaphorical that like it, you can't get it. You can't really understand it your first watch. You're just, you're just, honestly, your first time watching this, you're just overwhelmed kind of by what's happening and what's unfolding. And you can barely even think about it. And all you're doing is just like trying to keep up. You know what I mean? Because we saw it with a couple of people. Uh, it was their first time seeing it. And I spoke with one of them. He's like, Yeah, I'm not sure how I felt about it. So <laughs> I, was, I was like, Watch it again and it'll change. You'll have a better idea of it. But uh, I gave it five stars, obviously. And I wrote, Fellini's masterwork was already one of my favorite films of all time. But after seeing it projected on film in a theater, I found myself completely awestruck by the sheer brilliance that unfolded before me. This truly is a seminal work in cinema history, one which altered the very idea of what filmmaking could be. Fellini broke all the barriers which stood in the way of the art form and freed it up to become something more than just a film and something more than just a story. And I picked this really cool poster with the yellow background. I you love can actually, that. it's been on my letterbox for a few weeks That's on really my terrific. top four. But they have a lot of great options. This movie's obviously black and white. Um, we watched it with English subs, never dubs. Never, <laughs> never dubs. <laughs> never dubs, kid. Um, it's got a great soundtrack. They actually, um, Fellini used both Nino and Rota, wrote the score, but then there's a lot of uh, classical music. And there's actually a couple songs that Kubrick used in a couple of his films as well. Yeah, you, you, you all recognize a lot of the music in this movie. Yeah. It was actually a really funny situation because the New Beverly, it's an old school theater. You know, the old school seats, old school screen. And <laughs> so the, the screen isn't like a massive IMAX screen or anything like that. But it's big. It's big enough for everyone to see. And for this film, the subtitles were like pretty low in the frame. Usually there's like a, a little bit of space below but it's just a really old print. You know, this is this print was from the 60s and they even said there, there's a little wear and tear on it, but that like, you know, adds a little 
adds a little juice to it, you know. Adds a little. And it was really sauce. just in the opening, but really. um, it was so funny because we're all just everyone in their seats is just sitting back and relaxing, waiting for the movie to start and the trailers play. And then the first scene starts, and then the subtitles come up, and they're so low that everyone in the theater just like shifted their position. We all sat up, yeah, it was at so the same funny. time. It was like entire. It was like a herd of animals. We all because yeah. we were all comfortable sitting Chilling. back, and then everybody had to like sit up straight. <laughs> and <laughs> it we was, all did it in unison. Everyone laughed. It was actually a really funny like communal yeah. movie theater experience. It was a blast. But this movie, it's but, so, it ha- but it, I'm sorry, it was a very funny movie. So it, it yeah. was like it added to the movie experience. Yeah. It's a hysterical it's a, film. Yeah. And it's one of those movies where, you know, you see something different every time you think about it constantly. And I've still been thinking about it. It was like, I think the third time I watched it. But seeing it in, in a theater is a completely different experience. And I love, you know, movies within movies. And I love that concept of exploring self-reflection for an artist or a filmmaker, whether it's in a painting, in a song, in a film. And I think that, you know, this was a really relatable film for anyone, really. You don't have to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. or an Italian, fam- famous Italian filmmaker to, to get this movie or, or relate to it, as well as you'll never look at mineral water the same way either. <laughs> never again. <laughs> Aqua Frizzante. You said uh, Masterwork is Capolavoro, you said, in your review? Is that what Masterpiece. it was? Masterpiece. Masterpiece? Yeah. That's, that's interesting because um, Capo is boss and then Capo Lavoro. Yeah, well, it's, and then, it's also yeah. it's kind of like maestro. Yeah, yeah you could yeah, use yeah, maestro yeah. instead, but that's interesting. Maestro yeah. would be he is a maestro. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never I didn't know that word. I like it, Capo Lavoro. Capo Lavoro. It's a nice word. See. All right, last one. I, I got one more word about you. Well, I got. Oh wait, did I say my review? Yeah, I wrote. I wrote my review. But man, I love that movie. It's great. I'm and actually a lot of people. Um, when they play older older films, that, well, actually, actually, I think they've said it every time. They ask, "Is there anyone here watching it for the first time?" Yeah, they ask, and the audience will raise their hands. And I, th- I would say half the audience hadn't seen it before. Well, dude, when we went and saw *Glorious Bastards*, like so many people were like, it was their first time seeing it on film projection. I'm like, I'm yeah. so fucking jealous right now. Well, I forgot to say my my *Inglorious Bastards* story with the guys next to me. Did I? On the did you have I said it on the podcast? Save it for the weekly chat, or if you want, you can say it now. No, I'll say it now, yeah. Because yeah, there's now. plenty of other stuff to talk about the weekly chat. Yeah, we're, 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 we're recording the weekly chat after this, yeah. back-to-back. Which is on Patreon only, so we but, don't want to <laughs> be like that, those kinds of people. <laughs> Let's talk about this only on the weekly chat. Yeah, yeah. So we saw Glorious Bastards Midnight two weeks ago at the New Bev. And I'm sitting there, and there were three like younger guys came down and sat next on my right. And looked like early 20s. And <laughs> while James and I, we had gotten our, our snacks and drinks, and we were just chilling I was just keep I was just like watching them because these guys they they don't sell alcohol at the theater and they had bought they had both purchased some sodas and also brought like their own like bottled sodas of s- different kinds and they pulled out little nips of whiskey and vodka. And so nips are what we call in Boston those little mini bottles. Little, of yeah, the little tiny bottles that you can get a, at a convenience store or at, or at a liquor store like the little ones and they were just pouring the whiskey and, and liquor into their sodas. I was like, hey, I've been I've been 22 before. I probably would have done the same thing. <laughs> and they were getting like fucked up. And then um, the lights were still up. The movie hadn't started yet. And then I saw one of them pulled out a big uh, clear bag of mushrooms. <laughs> and I was like, at first I thought it was like some kind of like snack or something. But then I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, those are definitely mushrooms. And they were like, oh, yeah, we'll take these like in, in 30 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? They're taking mushrooms at the movies? Well, I mean, Mushrooms of the Movies is, is fine, f- yeah. depending on the movie, but yeah. Glorious Bastards? Yeah, yeah, and um, also two of them had never seen it before, because one of them who seemed to be, like, the, the ringleader, he was like, okay, guys, I want you to, like, no, don't use your phones. This is a special movie. You, you're gonna, you can't, like, l- distract yourself. You have to pay attention. 
that's going to be like life changing. Pay attention, <laughs> but also take these fucking psychedelic <laughs> drugs and exactly. drink booze and get fucked up. I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? How are you going to pay attention to a movie if you're fucking drunk and high on shrooms? And then, um, I kid you not, an hour into the movie, t- the two other guys were passed out, sn- snoring. I would have been passed out too. <laughs> they were, you kidding they me? were snoring, and uh, it was a couple. Of, they kept getting woken up when they weren't too loud. That I could, they weren't like bothering me. And then whenever there was like gunfire, they would wake up. <laughs> it was fucking hysterical. That was a weird. Situation. It was, yeah, so it was the first. I, I, it was a first for me in the movie theater, seeing seeing that. <laughs> All right, what's your next movie? Let's see. Last better, better film, be cool. I had one more, and I watched it last night. I watched for the first time ever the outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, Clint, fucking awesome, nice. dude! Uh, it's on Max HBO, the place Max. to watch the, outlaw, the one to watch, the one to watch for outlaw, for, for outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> um, <laughs> Clint Eastwood has made like forty-five movies in terms of directing in his career, and this is—it's got to be in his top ten. It's it really terrific. And he was, it's surprising to some people, I think, how creative of a filmmaker he was. Even with a Western, he just does things you've never seen before. And I think it has just an incredible first act. And I love stories about revenge and one of the most badass opening title credit sequences I've ever seen in my entire life. It's so fucking cool. But man, I love Westerns and I haven't watched a Western in a minute. And I was trying to figure out something to watch last night. And I was on Max, the place, the one to watch. Max. The one to watch for when you're looking for something to watch. And I stumbled upon the outlaw Josie Wales, and it's on, it's on their platform. You didn't have to rent it or pay for anything. And I was like, "Fuck it, let's go." I've never seen this movie. I've always wanted to. Also has maybe the most badass poster of all time. It's just it's Clint, there. Clint is outlaw Josie Wales screaming, firing revolvers. But it's really terrific. It's it's uh it's about a character, uh, this guy whose family gets brutally murdered by Union office, Union soldiers in the South, and basically just goes on a, a path of revenge. And I don't want to spoil too much about it, but if you like westerns and you've never seen this, definitely recommend checking it out. I haven't seen that in forever, man. That's I did not review one. it though because I just went to bed when, after I finished it. It was a late night. Yo, it was like eleven thirty. I'm like, I'm I'm sleepy now. Dave's is sleepy. It also came out the same year as Taxi Driver in 1976. Wow, yeah, pretty cool. But I'm, I'm glad I finally got around to it, man. It was I'm awesome. Glad you did too. Man, he moved it. That, that movie moves He's a cool, too. dude. He gets right into it like within a couple minutes, like setting everything up. He doesn't like to waste time. He, do- he really doesn't. There's, he, a, there's like I was like surprised how quickly it was getting going. Uh, there's a I saw this Matt Damon interview talking about when he worked with Clint. Um, for the uh, he were, they made two films together. They did the rugby one, and then the Invictus, Invictus, and then the spirituality one. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what that one was called, but um. They did a take, and Clint is famous for doing one take per shot, maybe two, if something ha- something went wrong, technically. But he generally likes to just do one take and then move on to the next shot. Um, they did a take, and then uh, Matt was like, do you want to do, um, should we do another one? Like, I can try something else. He's like, and then he goes. This is the first day of filming, right? And then, uh, yeah, and then Clint goes, what do you want to waste everybody else's time? <laughs> <laughs> you already wasted my time. He <laughs> pulls up his sweatpants <laughs> to, his, to his ribs. <laughs> I can love that guy, man. <laughs> But then um, uh, actors adjust to it. I've, I've seen lots of interviews of actors talking about working with Clint as a director, and they understand that they understand pretty quickly where it's like, okay, I got to put everything in the kitchen sink into my first shot and just really 
go go 100% instead of saving things for other takes. And they get used to that. They adjust to it. Hey, he knows what he wants. Guy's fucking Oscar-winning director. He's got to so. get home and eat his sandwich. He has dude. two Oscars for directing, so yeah. Listen he seems it. like a guy who wants to get off set. Like, like let's just. <laughs> I'm trying to get home and eat my salmon and run through the dailies. Like, we got this. We sh- we, we found the shot. Yeah, we just it's just a fucking. We're just gonna edit with the other one. Just a movie, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. He's so he's so fucking no he's bullshit. Such a fucking legend. He's great, man. He's great. <laughs> so that was my last watch for this week. Nice. I have um, one more watch myself. Only one. I'm surprised you didn't have like 17 more. Well, we were busy. Wait, actually, we weren't that busy. No, it was pretty, pretty yeah, busy. Yeah, we were busy. Yeah, we were pretty yeah. busy. What's going on, man? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got one, two, three, four. I only logged five movies in this week. So rookie number. Rookie yep. number. But they were long movies. Eight and a half. Quandon was three hours. And I also, my last movie was three hours as well. So that counts as kind of like two movies. It also sounds like you're making excuses, Anthony. Oh, no. Three-hour movie. It's a big commitment. I mean, they can't watch two movies in a night if one of them's three hours. You know what I mean? Okay, so my last film that I watched, it's a movie that I've been meaning to watch for so long. It's just been on my watch list, and you know, you you, you, be like, you make note of it, like, oh, I'm going to watch that, and then you just forget about it, you know? That happens to me every day. <laughs> this film is called Dogville, uh, directed by Lars von Trier, um, and it's, it's, I've been aware of it for a very long time. I just hadn't watched it. It's got an excellent cast, so Nicole Kidman, um, Lauren Bacall... Paul Bettany, James Cann, Patricia Clarkson, Jeremy Davies, um, Philip Baker Hall, um, Stellan Skarsgård, Chloe Sevigny. Huge, huge cast. Um, very talented. It's just like some of the best actors of that time. This came out in 2003. Now, this film is very interesting. So I'll give you a quick rundown of a synopsis. So Lars von Trier shot this in an empty soundstage. Um and it's set within a town called Dogville, but instead of building sets, instead of shooting on location, they shot the entire thing in an empty soundstage with chalk, with with painted lines for the barriers of each home, of the roads of the town, and of actual physical things. And so there are a lot of overhead shots of the film where you can see what the street looks like, and instead of walls for each person's home in the town, it's just a painted floor line. And then the the you can see like the there's a the, it says this person's bedroom this person's home and actually each house and each structure is labeled like this is the Edison home this is the old mill and there's only a couple of actual things built like there's there's like two two doors that are actually like, there are like two tiny doors um, walls that are built um, all the doors are non-existent the actors actually just mime opening doors um, animals are not there but they're they're in the scene, so they use sound design to actually um, imply what's going on. So when someone's walking across a wood floor, it's just the soundstage, but they'll do um, wood foley art, or they'll do the sound of a door being opened. Wow, I'm looking at the photos. Yeah, it well, looks really cool. Yeah, while the actor mimes opening the door, or if, like, the only things that people will be interacting with physically is, like, if they're using, like, a tool, they'll actually have the tool there. There's, there's some things that are there. Um, there's a couple of just very simple props. Um, they'll have some beds for the actors and a couple of chairs for them to sit on, but otherwise it's an empty set. And then they, so, and then the background, um, it's either evening or, or daytime. And so the background, the walls of the soundstage is just pitch black in the background. You can't see anything beyond the actors in the set or for daytime, the walls of the soundstage are just this glowing white. Um, and just like this kind of piercing blown out white. 
It kind of adds like this dreamy quality to it. And it's just such an interesting movie. And he filmed it digitally uh, with very simple camera work, mostly handheld camera work. And it's very intimate. And so it's about this small town called Dogville. And uh, uh, a woman who's wanted by the mafia, played by Nicole Kidman, um, shows up to hide. They take her in. Um, and then over the course of the next couple of years while she's staying there, she does her best to try to earn her way and prove that the is that she can like pay them back for them taking her in and protecting her. But then um, the dark side of humanity begins showing up within all of the residents who at first once welcomed her with open arms to protect another person. Now they've all turned on her and you get and they end up taking advantage of her in different ways. And it's actually extremely grim and dark and it shows like the the, the deepest depths to which like um, people are capable of. It's just really, really incredible, incredible film. Um, I'll give you the synopsis. A barren soundstage is stylishly utilized to create a minimalist small town setting in which a mysterious woman named Grace hides from the criminals who pursue her. The town is two-faced and offers to harbor Grace as long as she can make it worth their effort. So as Grace works hard under the employ of various townspeople to win their favor. Tensions flare, however, as Grace's status as a helpless outsider provokes vicious contempt and abuse from the citizens of Dogville. I found it to just be an unbelievable depiction of humanity. I just did a quick review, a shocking and brilliant depiction of the complexity of the human nature and the troubling depths to which we are all capable of falling. Um, and in a way, it shows how um, every person is capable of becoming you know, a monster, um, to the eyes of someone else, um, and once once someone is degraded down to a lower class, um, even people who were once good people will view that person with contempt and with pity, and will in a way will find ways of taking advantage of them. And it's just an unbelievable study of the human condition and morality and. I was just so fucking transfixed. It's a three-hour movie, but I'm telling you, it flew by because and it's it's interesting at first when you're watching the film. There's there's like no sets or anything. It's like whoa, this is crazy. But then, ironically, like you just it just clicks, and then you're not even thinking about the lack of sets. You're not even thinking about the fact that you're not like in someone's actual home. You're just in a soundstage. You begin to use your imagination, just like the actors are. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like reading a book. There's also narration by Jeffrey Rush you hear oftentimes throughout the film. So it, it was like watching um it was like watching a novel unfold. And you are it's just like how when you read a novel and you're picturing in your mind what's happening, you're creating the imagery, you're creating the characters, you're creating the walls that are described. You're as an audience member watching the film, you're kind of doing the same thing. And I found it to just be absolutely brilliant. I've never seen a movie like it. Um, I gave it five stars because it's it's just such an incredible, brave thing to do. Um, and the cast, I'm sure the cast loved making the movie because they had to use their imagination completely, and they just had to like give themselves up to that process. Um, it's just it's a fascinating film. I couldn't recommend it enough. All right, well that wraps up Letterboxd recap. Number three, everybody. Number three. Hope you're all having a great week. Don't forget to check out recent episodes. Yesterday on Monday, we did 
an episode on movies from memory where we recounted the entire film of Spider-Man from memory. We got Taxi Driver coming out on Thursday this week, plus so many other great episodes the last month and two. So check them out if you haven't seen them. We've been doing nothing but bangers. Chinatown, Children of Men, Across the Spider-Verse, Evil Dead Rise, you name it, we've been doing it. So take care, everyone, and have a great day. See you next time. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.